Well, we're really excited to have everyone back on Pain Reframed. Today, we're going to have a fun episode for those that are into the neuroscience of pain, which is really all of our listeners. This is Pain Reframed. I was fortunate enough to meet Marta at a recent conference by the AAPMNR that was down in Denver, where she spoke on what's happening in terms of updated work in chronic pain and its effects on not only the structure of the brain, but also the neural networks within the brain. And I think you'll find that Marta brings a message of hope and of excitement in the research that's coming on board down at uh, CU Boulder in persistent and chronic pain. We are really excited to have a special guest on today joining us from uh, Boulder, Colorado, Dr. Marta Seco, who is a PhD postdoctoral research associate down at the University of Colorado Boulder. Marta, would you mind giving the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. So my background is in uh, neuroscience. I did my PhD in Montreal at McGill University with Catherine Bushnell. Before that, I did my master's in medical neuroscience in Berlin. And now I'm in Boulder working with Dr. Thorweger on pain and pain regulation in the brain. I was fortunate to listen to you talk uh, recently at the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Specialists, and you gave a very compelling talk on the brain and, and chronic pain's effect on the brain. How did you get into this line of research? I got into pain specifically during my master's because there, well, there was actually an opening in the seminar and they needed one more person or it wouldn't take place. So I thought, why not? Pain is as interesting mm-hmm. as anything else. Turned out to be more interesting than a lot of other things to me, also thanks to the great teachers I had. So that's how my pain interest started. I've been interested in the brain forever, and then I thought I would combine the two and go on to do, try to find a place where I can do a PhD in the effects of pain on the brain. And given that this is such a complex topic, I don't think I'm ever getting out of it. (laughs) If you had to tell the listeners, you know, what chronic pain, how it alters the brain, how would you respond to that question? So what we know currently is that chronic pain has effects on both brain structure and brain function. These are not effects we can necessarily see on a single brain. So it's not as big of a, an effect that might, you might you know, see in an Alzheimer's uh, brain, but it definitely has effects on brain structures involved in pain regulation. So what we think that happens in chronic pain is that systems that are in place in a healthy brain that kind of make sure that pain is processed in a healthy way and the pain is inhibited when needed, these systems are out of balance in chronic pain, essentially. So we have increased nociceptive or pain input from the periphery into the brain. We have increased pain facilitation going down from the brain and also decreased inhibition of pain. So everything just seems to be more tuned to processing the pain in a chronic pain patient. 
in the brain or chronic pain patient. How are we visualizing that? So as you guys are looking at the research, what sort of scans, you know, we hear a lot about functional MRI, we hear a lot about CT scan, different kind of neurophys studies. What are you looking at specifically and what are some of the ways that researchers are gaining this insight into some of the differences that pertain to someone who's dealing with chronic pain? So the most common one would be um, MRI, not even functional MRI, just structural MRI, which means that we have a person come in, lie in the scanner for about five minutes and we acquire a picture of the brain. We can then compare these pictures in a group of patients with chronic pain to a group of healthy controls. And what we see is that when we compare the size of specific brain structure, statistically, we can see that some structures are smaller than in a healthy brain. So we call that a decrease in gray matter volume or density. That's one of the most commonly observed findings in chronic pain patients. And then we can also use functional MRI, as you mentioned, to either look at how brains of chronic pain patients activate when the pain patient is either in pain, in their clinical pain during the scan, or we can give them experimental pain and see how they process this. And we see differences in both of these scenarios. So first of all, when patients are experiencing their own everyday pain, we say that some of the areas that are activated and connected are behave in differently than in a healthy brain. And how is the established, you know, validity, reliability, and, and just sort of usability of the functional MRI? I've heard folks say that there's been some recent challenges to what we can really take from that imaging. Is it pretty, you know, well proven and well sourced that? that what we're taking from that imaging, we can we can trust the, the functional MRI specifically? We can trust it. There are nowadays, given that this has been going on for at least 10 years, uh, functional MRI research in chronic pain, a lot of studies have been replicated. Of course, not everything. And the more studies you have, the more findings you will, different findings you'll have. But we know that overall, there are a few areas of the brain where we consistently find differences in chronic pain patients. All of these studies are based on a group of patients being compared to a group of healthy controls. And that's always important to keep in mind. So these are subtle differences in brain activity and connectivity and structure. And we cannot yet reliably pick them up on a single patient's brain. There's some initial work with that, but so far that's very, very in its infant stages. Cool. When you mentioned the, the structural MRI, you, you mentioned actual different you know, size aspects of, of the gray matter. Do we think that those are changes that are developing once someone experiences chronic pain and has it for a while? Or do we think that people are susceptible due to an existing you know, varying shapes and size and function of their gray matter? Are those things that we think are changing with the existence of pain, or do we think those are differences in an individual's brain that make them more susceptible to developing and experiencing chronic pain? If I had to bet, I would say we think of it as chronic pain coming first. So chronic pain's impact on the brain is results in these gray matter changes. We now actually have some evidence that this is true, at least in a large group of patients with chronic back pain. So the study showing that if you take this particular study, took a group of people who had subacute pain, so they've only had pain for, let's say, a month or a few weeks, and it had not yet developed into chronic pain, and they followed this group of people for a year. And so of, let's say, 100 patients, 
about half of them recovered and about half of them, their pain turned uh, chronic. And if you, if you look at those longitudinal results, what you see is that those people, only those people who developed chronic pain developed gray matter decreases. Whereas the group that recovered, their brains looked normal after a year. So this would imply that, yes, chronic pain comes first and it results in gray matter changes. But this is not to say that all of the changes we see are a result of chronic pain. There might be some predisposing factors that facilitate development of chronic pain as well. If you think about, as we've been discussing more on the, the structural side of the brain and, and the again, the, the amount of gray matter, how is on these same groups of individuals that go on to chronification or chronic pain, what happens with kind of the, the communication or the, the networks within the brain in those individuals? What we see is alterations in how different regions are connected or communicate with each other. We see both decreases in this connectivity or let's call it communication for now, and also increases. So this will depend on a particular network that we are investigating and sometimes also depends on the chronic pain disorder and sometimes is related to how long people have had pain. So it depends on what, at what stage of their disorder they are scanned. So to say, one very popular network that has been talked about recently is the default mode network. This is thought to be a collection of brain regions that kind of communicate with each other at all times. So even when we are not doing anything, when we are kind of, when we are resting, when our brains are at rest, and we think that that network has to do with processing of eternal information, self-relevant information, and kind of rumination. And this, this network seems to be particularly affected in many diseases, including chronic pain. And so what we think when we look at those findings, we think that this network is kind of hyperactive in chronic pain. Mm-hmm. It might be very busy with processing the pain relevant information in the chronic pain patient and therefore might have been kind of hijacked and not able to process some other information. So is it safe to say then you mentioned rumination where again these these pathways begin to be used over and over it's a rapid fire path in that portion of the brain. I guess the example I'm thinking of is fear avoidance and uh, hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. Could you talk to that and in, in in the context you just mentioned? We observe different things in chronic pain. One of them Let's start with structure. So some of these areas that are affected by chronic pain or where we consistently see gray matter decrease, such as the prefrontal cortical areas that are involved in pain inhibition, usually in a normal brain, they seem to be related. So the decrease of the gray matter in these regions seems to be related in some patients to the amount of catastrophizing about pain. So the negative coping of pain that is present in some chronic pain patients is related to the structural changes. One way to interpret this is that these structures are no longer able to perform their pain inhibitory functions, but are instead now used, maybe not instead, but are now used in negative coping behaviors of pain. 
we also see when sometimes with successful treatment, some of these structures actually partly recover. So we see gray matter decrease in structures that usually previously were observed to be smaller. And some of this recovery is related to pain recovery. So decrease catastrophizing about pain or improved quality of life. That's a structure. What we also see is, for example, the network we mentioned, the default mode network, some of the connectivity changes within this network, for example, increased connectivity or communication between two main regions of this network has been related to, again, increased catastrophizing about pain or increased rumination about pain. This all to say that these changes in the brain are functionally significant and are related not only to pain intensity or duration, but also to developed coping or lack of coping with pain. So when you think about targeting, if we stay on this topic, targeting therapies, uh, whether it be cognitive behavioral or perhaps external stimulation of that region of the brain, let's say if we stay in the prefrontal cortex region, what do you see as kind of the, the most exciting breakthroughs in terms of kind of restoring those neural networks to a healthier state? Well, first of all, I think it's fascinating that something like CBT or any other non-invasive, non-pharmacological, purely psychological treatment can even affect the brain like this. And these studies are also recent. There haven't been that many yet, but there's more and more research showing that mindfulness, acceptance-based theory, uh, sorry, therapy, and other psychological approaches can have profound effects on the brain. So and overall, that is the most fascinating or exciting area of research to me when it comes to pain treatment. Katia, as you started that statement there, Marta, it was almost a, a, a surprise when in fact we probably inherently within our bodies, our ability to, you know, we're healing, we're every day, we have, uh, we have trauma, we have all these things that we're adapting to the environment um, and have a massive adaptive ability as humans. And yet it's almost, we're surprised when we see some of these patient-centered treatments having profound effects. I, I, I'm just curious, you know, as a scientist, is it, we have a bit of bias that we bring into, you know, the, that the external world or things we externally do can have a more profound effect than what we can do, you know, individually to ourselves. I think so, for sure. You know, you think about a drug, that's a, that's a concrete thing. It's a pill you see in front of you. Whereas you think about CBT and mindfulness, then it all sounds a bit abstract. Mm -hmm. So if you had to choose one, you had to bet on one that would have more impact on the brain or the body, I think people tend to choose the pill. But as we now know, a lot of treatments for pain in a long term don't work so well, or they don't work without side effects. And so we might have to accept that some of the pain we just won't be able to reduce or get rid of ever. So we won't be able to reduce the pain sensitivity, but the way we deal with pain, that's something we can work on. We can change our relationship to pain. And we now know that by changing our relationship to pain, either by using CBT or mindfulness approaches or acceptance approaches, we not only change our relationship to pain and therefore improve our quality of life, but this also has real observable changes in the brain which I think is something that probably helps the patient 
gives them hope. Again, that whole idea of the brain that changes itself and the ability of adaptability of our, our brain. And I really hope that, you know, this exciting research you guys are doing, that we can bring it in um, ways that are very relatable to people in chronic pain because we struggle a lot as clinicians with providing that message of hope that shows no there's real mm-hmm. science behind you know this this change it's hard to do because it's hard to change a pill is much easier right exactly uh, <laughs> but exactly. i mean you guys are just showing some yeah. wild stuff as far as i'm concerned <laughs> and this one all the uh, psychological approaches we just mentioned they all require collaboration between the patient and the person treating them and that's something that so it is it is potentially harder to stick with these therapies it's harder to make them work and be patient than just taking a pill but i think this is something also that the whole field not just the research but also hopefully your side is moving towards to to trying to increase the self-agency in patients and their perceived control over their pain and try to make it more of a dialogue and more of a more of a team effort to treat the pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think too, Marta, one of the big challenges will be, you know, it's so much easier to study the effects of a pill. You, know, you talk about CBT in, in the multivariate relationship between, you know, how each provider delivers that. You know, there's so many, there's so many variables going on there with the way somebody forms that therapeutic alliance and trust and, and how you go about, you know, explaining, you know, different aspects that are sometimes oftentimes abstract and complicated and try to simplify those for a patient. Everyone has a different style of doing that. So I think studying the effects are going to be challenging. I think necessary, but I think challenging. For sure. For sure. Standardizing. This is something we are actually right now struggling with we are developing a new study where we will investigate a a number of different strategies and we want to make them as simple and as clear as we can and just working on the wording there that's incredibly difficult and extremely impactful (laughs) treatment i just think marty you know if tim and i were to go in with a patient who we had both agreed you know, was dealing with some catastrophizing and centralization and, and maladaptive changes, the way that we would go about that process, even though we had the same end goal in mind, I mean, he's going to bring in a lot of different personal history from his aspect to relate to the patient, as am I. It, it's going to be a very different looking eight weeks, even with the same target. Yeah. I'm curious, Marta, time-wise, you know, you were saying that there was some evidence showing that it, it does indeed seem to be the pain coming first. And then we see some of these changes in gray matter um, over a period of time. I'm always wondering as a clinician, not that time is the only variable. Please don't hear me say that length of time of pain means centrally driven, but certainly one variable is the longer somebody has it hanging around, the more we start to think things are going in this direction. Do we have an idea of how long someone might need to be dealing with relatively constant, persistent pain to start seeing some of these maladaptive gray, gray matter changes? Some evidence from that one study I mentioned would suggest that less than a year is enough or even a few months only. So in that study, they actually did scans, I think, let's say every every three or four months. So at least three or, three or four times during the first year and already at the first follow-up visit. So at about three months, they observed some gray matter decrease in people who went on to develop chronic pain, which is not great news. It can occur so quickly, but the good news is that as we see, treatment can reverse some of it. So 
but yeah, they are they they can they can appear pretty pretty rapidly. Marta, as you go forward into 2018 and you look at some of the, the research projects you have going on, you you mentioned you have some uh, th- therapeutic uh, type uh, projects going on. Are you are you at liberty to kind of let the listeners know kind of some things that you're working on as you go into the new year? What I'm working on right now is healthy healthy people. So we are trying to get at the basic brain mechanisms of self-regulation, of cognitive self-regulation. And what we also are trying to do now is try to develop a study that will help us predict what kind of treatment or what kind of self-regulation strategy works best for what kind of person. So we're trying to match a person with their best personal strategy. Since we know that of all the available psychological approaches there, even though we know they overall seem to be effective, different things are effective for different people. And for example, you you won't get me to, you won't be able to force me to do yoga, but I know yoga is good for me. But I'm just, it's just not good, not not a good match for me. Whereas something else might be a good match for me. And whatever works the best is the one thing that the patient wants to do, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot of personal we think personality traits, motivational influence, but being able to understand some of the brain science uh, behind how these things work, all of this influences what will work for us, we think. So we are trying now to tease out the personality and so on contributions to what makes a person a good responder to a certain thing. That's basically what we'll be doing next year. Wow. Yeah, that, that that's really exciting. And I, I you, that really resonated that idea again of what we found in the therapy worlds now and the quote, the manual therapies and the exercises that there used to be big fights about, you know, this technique was superior to this mm-hmm. technique and, and the like. And I think we are arguing often the wrong way because it was really, as you just eloquently stated, what resonates with the patient and will and provide them not only continue, they're motivated to continue, but it also activates something deeper within mm-hmm. them. That's really cool that you guys are subgrouping in that way. Mm-hmm. And this is only so far in healthy controls, but we do think that some of these things, especially given the relationship with some stable personality traits, a lot of this will translate into into chronic pain patients. Of course, not not, not all of it, but... And right now, yeah, we're, we're working on designing these many strategies, or several at least, and trying to categorize them and try to uh, develop the language on how to present them. And one more thing that's important, but this actually comes from talking to you, Tim, is the importance of pain education. Mm-hmm. or neuroscience of pain education, especially given how a lot of these things are abstract. Not everybody has heard so much about the brain. Telling people, yeah, letting them know that we can do this. The brain is plastic. We can change the brain. We can, as you said, we can. it can be adaptive, maladaptive. Presenting that information to the patients before you start working with them on whatever Treatment is probably extremely 
useful or important. Marta, I think that's huge. I've had so many patients, you see their eyes light up with hope just when you explain the basic concept of neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. that these things are remodeling in the environment that we put you in, in the environment that you put yourself in, um, is going to have a major effect on how that remodeling takes place. And like you said, that can be maladaptive, but the beautiful thing is it can be adaptive. It's simply a yeah. matter of manipulating the right variables. And, and if people understand how these things are happening at, at some big conceptual level, they might be more inclined to stick with it. I mean, I think it's going to be so cool, Marta, to watch as your research line develops, you know, to think of you all being able to actually show pictures of gray matter and then correlating to an intervention and then post post interventional pictures. I mean, that we could show patients and say, look, you know, these are folks who who have been intervening with similar methodology to what we're going to use. And these are structural changes in their brain that correlated to a change in their function and symptoms. I mean, the amount of hope that's going to bring people is incredible. Yeah, I, I got to jump on that because those images can be so powerful. And why we say that is we are counteracting the negative images of what herniated discs and, mm-hmm. you know, meniscal tears and all these people peer inside their body and immediately they feel, quote, broken when they see these kind of images, even if they're normal age-related changes. And yet it's hard to reframe that 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 image once they've seen that. If we could have counter images that actually show, well, you know, here's what, you know, here's your body adapting in a very positive and healthy way. And this is what it looks like during recovery as your as your body and, and actually your brain uh, begins to adapt and, and, and become healthy again. Yeah, I agree with that. Anything at all that you can drop to our listeners if they're interested in kind of following your line of research or should they just keep um, keep a sharp eye out for journals, etc.? They can follow me on Twitter at Marta Checo. So just my first name, last name. People can follow the work we do in the lab at Vager Lab, so W-A-G-E-R lab.colorado.edu. If they just Google Thor Vager, they'll find the website immediately. Beautiful. We'll have all that in the show notes so everyone that's interested can really jump on that and track it. Well, for, for patients and for clinicians, this is just gigantic insight because the more that we can start objectively tracking this stuff, and like Tim said, the more that we can fight the negative images, um, the more we're going to really begin to shift that needle and create that hope. And once the hope is there, anything's possible. Yes. People knowing that this is not the end. This is not, your brain has possibly changed due to chronic pain, but we can reverse that. Yeah. Just having that knowledge is, is huge. Mm. Well, thank you so much. If anybody wants to participate in our research, be it uh, for chronic pain patients, we now have a few studies, or as healthy controls, they can do so on our website. Excellent. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes as well. And listeners um, that are in the Colorado region, check that out. Help us out because that's clearly, that's how we make a difference. Correct. (laughs) Wow. Well, what a great conversation. So appreciate Marta coming on and more importantly, appreciate the incredible work that she's doing over there in Boulder. I mean, to think that we can, you know, generate some really solid data and, and, and like Tim said, create some images for people that are the exact counterpoint of what unfortunately society presses upon. On them to date, um, sort of in an effort to sell different interventions um, and different products, etc., to be able to show people, look, your brain under your own power can remodel, you know, and if we can just get the right environment going, yes, there's been some maladaptive changes. Those can go the other direction. Let's get after it, inspire that hope and create that change. So what an exciting conversation. Cannot wait to watch her go forward in all the incredible research that they're doing with their group. So folks, thank you so much. Really appreciate the ongoing support. Please get over to ISPI 
ACI, International Spine and Pain Institute. Please check out those courses. Make sure you're checking out the uh, the, the Align conference coming up next year and check out that pain certification. You know, we've had so many people reach out to us and say going through that six-month program just completely transformed the way that they not only understand pain, not only work with patients, but just the entire way they see this problem in society. So we really want you to dive in there and, and take that full deep dive to understand the scenario and how you can be a big part of the solution. So thanks everyone. Hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on social media, have a killer day and we'll see you soon. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.